This week marks the 500th anniversary of the death of one of the leading contributors to neuroscience, medicine, civil engineering, creative arts, and basically any other scholarly discipline, Leonardo da Vinci. Born in 1452 in Florence, da Vinci was an expert witness to natural phenomena, and because of his artistic predisposition, his inquisitive nature, and impeccable attention to detail, his writings and influence have long survived his death in 1519. Welcome back to Brainwaves, a podcast about neurology and medicine and all the fascinating science and history that come with it. I'm your host, Jim Siegler, and this week on the program, the legacy of Leonardo da Vinci, his philosophy, his contributions to neuroanatomy, our present day theories as to the function of the cranial nerves, the cerebral ventricles, and the physiologic relationship that bridges consciousness, nervous tissue, and muscle movements. Stay with us. Referred to as Larghita Dadaio by his biographer Giorgio Vasari, da Vinci was truly a gift from God. Although da Vinci was the quintessential Renaissance man, our creator of The Last Supper and the Mona Lisa never attended university, and he was only introduced to Latin in his 40s. He prided himself on his experimental learning rather than the book learning that comprised mainstream education after the Middle Ages. My works are the issue of pure and simple experience, da Vinci writes. That's not to say that he was never wrong and that he did not study the great anatomist before his time. In the 16th century, at the time of da Vinci, physicians and barber surgeons labored over the classic writings of Galen, the Arabic anatomic canon of Avicenna, and later Mondino's Anatomia, texts which were no doubt found in da Vinci's personal library. Regrettably, many of da Vinci's works on anatomy and neuroanatomy were not published during his lifetime. Therefore, his influence in medicine was rather limited, in spite of his many accomplishments and his contributions to art, to civil engineering, and natural philosophy. And like other major players of the Renaissance, Copernicus, the astronomer, Chaucer, the poet, Paracelsus, the physician and philosopher, like all these other great minds, da Vinci was quickly recognized for his talent, but his scientific contributions would only reach international respect after his death. Among his descriptions were the first accurate characterizations of several cranial nerves as signal transmitters to the brain, which was the seat of consciousness. Again, da Vinci was most reliant on his own senses and experience, so he quickly became adept at exploring the human body through human and animal dissection. At the time, it was still relatively taboo to dissect human tissues, and most anatomists and medical teachings were historically dependent on animal anatomy, as described by Galen in the 2nd century CE. Da Vinci, and later Andreas Vesalius, were among the Renaissance pioneers of human anatomy. Among da Vinci's earliest anatomic drawings, some of the most impressive renditions involved the human skull. Its compartments, which we call the fossa, the nerves, and the ventricles. At the time, it was increasingly accepted that the brain was the seat of consciousness and all your cognitive faculties. This detracts from the previously held Aristotelian notion that consciousness resided in the heart, which pumped the vital blood to the body. With the loss of blood in great quantities, one explanation goes, a person would lose consciousness. So the notion that the heart was the seat of consciousness was beginning to fall out of favor in the late Renaissance, and perhaps the brain was the central area of fermentation. What da Vinci thought about it was that it was not the brain tissue itself that was responsible for these functions. The soul is intangible, da Vinci believed. Therefore, the soul could not be comprised of any physical matter, it must have existed in the fluid-filled cavities of the brain, 
the ventricles. And the third ventricle, which da Vinci recognized as the centralmost compartment of the skull, was the site where all senses must converge. Such an approach to human physiology, that the composition or the structure of an organ can give you insight into its purpose, was characteristic of medieval medicine. And it's an approach to neuroscience that we've espoused to this day. That form in biology follows function. That was Dr. Anjan Chatterjee from a prior episode we produced on language localization. The structure of an organ on the macro and the micro level would be best suited for its function. That was part of the medieval medical doctrine. The soul seems to reside in the judgment, da Vinci writes, and the judgment would seem to be seated in that part where all the senses meet, and this is called the senso commune. A student of physics, da Vinci was also convinced that the sensory information was delivered mechanically along the nerve tracks, eventually reaching what da Vinci alone referred to as the imprensiva, basically the brain's sensory centers. From here, the information could be processed and transmitted to the senso commune, the center of awareness, and from there converted into memory. Historians are quite certain that da Vinci's artistic inclinations were what led him to some of the best descriptions of the cerebral ventricles. His knowledge of wax and ability to manipulate it to generate sculptures gave him the idea to take molten wax, inject it into the skull of a human cadaver, let it cool, and then remove the brain parenchyma. What would be left would be an exact cast of the ventricular system. Though he may have referenced Galen's anatomic texts on ape anatomy, or he may have referenced the Islamic physician Avicenna or Mondina, he had no real atlas upon which to base his wax experiments, nor were there any widely available needles or published methods on how to create wax molds of anatomic structures. He conceived this all on his own, and in similar fashion, he would generate wax molds of the aorta and chambers of the heart. Jonathan Pevsner, professor of neuroscience at the Johns Hopkins University, writes that da Vinci was most interested in visual perception and the physics of light. The eye is the chief organ, da Vinci writes, whereby the senso commune can have the most complete and magnificent view of the infinite works of nature. Once the aperture of the eye receives the light, da Vinci would describe the physics of how light information could be transmitted to the imprensiva, and it did this, da Vinci thought, by a process of percussion down the optic nerves, which he thought to be hollow. As much a student of engineering as he was of anatomy, da Vinci applied principles of physics and machinery to his understanding of the human body. Knowledge of levers and pulley systems permitted him a clearer understanding of the functions of muscles and nerves. He recognized that nerve signals to muscles would lead to their rapid contraction or relaxation, drawing the ligaments and bones closer together, which was a pretty impressive realization for da Vinci's time. Da Vinci was also the first to describe the olfactory nerve as one of the cranial nerves which transmitted the sensation of smell. Form in biology following function, da Vinci observed that the olfactory bulb of the lion was particularly large and perfectly suited for a predator in the savanna that might rely heavily on its sense of smell. Of da Vinci's other anatomic experiments and dissections, he provided some of the earliest and most accurate descriptions of the spinal cord. The cord, da Vinci wrote, provided the foundation of movement and life. When the medulla of a frog would be severed, the frog would die immediately. Following injury to other organs, da Vinci observed, the frog's death would be prolonged. A frog's heart might continue to beat following decapitation, or it might continue to move following a rest of heart muscle contraction. But after sectioning the medulla, all function would stop.
While we might consider spinal cord transection a simple procedure today, it was probably the first physiologic experiment since the days of Galen 1300 years earlier. Through his visual observations and experiments, da Vinci was one of the earliest to recognize that the spinal cord was composed of similar matter to the brain. Therefore, it could subserve other sensory functions and relay sensory percepts to the imprensiva. Although many anatomic texts by da Vinci were not published until well after his time, and da Vinci would later lament the fact that he did not contribute enough to the knowledge of man at the time of his death, da Vinci's anatomic descriptions would have likely been overshadowed by the Flemish anatomist Andreas Vesalius. Vesalius, who was born in 1514, studied medicine at the University of Padua after growing bored from a short stint in the Parisian military. So impressive was Vesalius' knowledge of medicine and anatomy that the day he graduated from medical school, he was offered the chair of surgery and anatomy at the University of Padua. Six years later, only 28, Vesalius published his stunning anatomic text, De Humani Corporis Fabrica, because of which the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V appointed him to become his own imperial physician. So what of da Vinci himself? We should at least acknowledge a few of his own neurologic idiosyncrasies before wrapping up the show. If you've ever come across some of da Vinci's writings, or if you've seen the Da Vinci Code... Demons, omens, codes, monks, ranks, rocks... Madonna of the rocks. Da Vinci. You'll know that da Vinci had a very unique style of handwriting. Mirror images of each other. The man wrote backwards. Now... Da Vinci's writing was not only unique because he wrote backwards, from right to left using a mirror, but he also happened to be left-handed. Yeah, one of those kinds of people. His left-handed script was written right to left exactly the opposite way that right-handed authors write left to right. And to make matters more puzzling to historians, while Da Vinci's words and sentences and his enigmatic picture sequences were written in this way, his numbers were not. As would be conventional for right-handers, da Vinci wrote his numbers from left to right. Words, though, right to left. Now why is this, you might ask? Da Vinci's idiosyncratic approach to the written word has been extensively studied, and because the visionary never really explained why he would write in this manner, we have only our own hypotheses. One hypothesis was that he simply wrote in this type of code in order to preserve his intellectual property. Plagiarism was a real threat in those times, and many of his written works contain structural plans for inventions or for outlines of experiments, from water-powered engines to advanced artillery which could be used in war. So it stood to reason that he would want to protect these ideas in whatever way possible. However, writing in this backwards script predated his own intellectual curiosity. He had used mirror writing at an age long before he was designing one of the earliest crossbows to be used in combat, or before describing some of the earliest human-operated flying machines. A separate theory related to his practice of dissections, which, since the days of Galen, were condemned by most leaders of the Christian church. Therefore, to conceal da Vinci's practices, it may have been wise to document them in a way that would be difficult to interpret. That being said, many of his dissections took place in ecclesiastical hospitals, so there appears to be less merit for this argument. Perhaps his mere writing was simply a solution to his difficulties with left-hand dominance, which could have been compounded by dyslexia. Throughout da Vinci's unpublished works, scholars have identified several word reversals, or errors in the arrangement of letters. Da Vinci also seemed to fuse words together, or divide them up without a clear reason. 
Maybe that was an indicator of his lack of formal education. Not to mention he did not use punctuation very regularly. Whether his dyslexia and mirror writing are true, true, and unrelated is entirely up for debate. But the fact of the matter is, we do know from several studies of linguistics that mirror writing is more common among left-handed persons. And we know that in childhood, it is common to observe mirror movements on the left side when the right side muscles activate. Eventually, these mirrored movements become subclinical, as inhibitory cortical signals isolate unilateral motor circuits. But it is possible that homologous muscles and movements in the left hand may attempt to replicate those of the right hand during handwriting, and that these movements may be better perceived and controlled while looking into a mirror. Being left-handed, a sinistral writer, any neurologist would then question which of his hemispheres was the dominant. Now, this has almost zero utility for answering 500 years after his death, but for the curious listeners out there, we can at least consider the evidence. At the end of his life, da Vinci was visited by a cardinal, and their interaction was documented by the cardinal's secretary, who writes that, of the pictures that were drawn by da Vinci at this time, and I quote, all of them most perfect, but indeed on account of a certain paralysis having seized him in the right hand, one cannot expect him to make more fine things. In several reports, scholars believe this to have been the result of a stroke, but we have no real clinical history or at least any pathologic evidence to support that it was a stroke or an evolving brain tumor or anything else could have even been carpal tunnel. Whatever it was, da Vinci's non-dominant hand or arm appeared to have been affected by some sort of injury. And if we presume that his right hand paralysis was cerebral in origin, and it's unclear if it were, and if his language remained intact, which we know that it was, it is possible that his dominant hemisphere was on the right side, as we see in about 10-15% to 15% of sinistrals, left-handers. But this relies on several key factors, that his right-hand weakness was not peripheral in origin, not carpal tunnel or something, and that if it localized to the central nervous system, that it had to have been a cortical injury, and that if it was cortical, then it must involve a larger territory than just the area that we call the hand knob. All this being said, what should we take away from Leonardo da Vinci, at least as physicians? As we've studied da Vinci's works over time, one notion has crystallized. During his lifetime, art and natural philosophy, what we might call science, were very much interrelated. And da Vinci epitomizes that intersection between art and science. As much as the study of the human eye was an art to him, crafting a canvas was as much of a science. It is a necessary thing for the painter, da Vinci writes, in order to be good at arranging parts of the body in attitudes and gestures which can be represented in the nude, to know the anatomy of the sinews, bones, muscles, and tendons. These and other recommendations were eventually published in the compilation titled A Treatise on Painting, which was put together by his pupil, Francisco Melzi, after da Vinci's death. Complete with various renditions of positions and movements of the joints and the functions of the muscles, a treatise on painting also highlights the science of color contrast and the adaptation of geometric principles when casting light across a scene. The several hundred page text was basically a collection of instructions as to how the artist should leverage scientific principles in their creations. From this text, it is clear that da Vinci's intellectual curiosity and exploration of natural phenomena were beyond parallel and nothing short of inspirational.
As I was preparing today's program, I wondered what da Vinci would think about our complaints nowadays regarding physician burnout. Like Isaac Newton, da Vinci would spend his day from sunup to sundown in front of a canvas or nose deep in his notebooks, drafting schematics for bridges or pulleys, or conceiving the detail that has made The Last Supper one of the most iconic and debated paintings of Christian theology. All day da Vinci would be doing this, without fatigue. For medical professionals, you just don't see this level of enthusiasm anymore. We are exhausted. And we have every right to be. What drew us into this field was our passion for patient care, not our destiny for desk work. Da Vinci could have given in to desk work in his day and age. He could have published a seminal anatomic text like Vesalius did to appease the Holy Roman Emperor, but Da Vinci was too possessed by discovery. He felt no other purpose than to explore the natural world and portray it using his own creative genius. Makes you wonder, is it this intersection between curiosity and creativity that we've come to ignore as physicians? And if that's the case, how can we reconnect? Today, May 2nd, 500 years ago, marks the anniversary of Leonardo da Vinci's passing. His contributions to science and art and medicine and his intense curiosity are all worth remembering and no doubt worth celebrating. This point in European history was about to witness an upheaval in the medical education curriculum. No longer were students of medicine solely reliant on ancient texts and anatomic observations made by Galen, descriptions largely based on the study of apes. Human dissection was soon to be practiced, and empiric observation replacing book learning. And da Vinci's exquisite anatomic renditions and physiologic descriptions of the human form were among the first to overturn this outdated Galenic approach. The Brainwaves Podcast was produced out of Studio 3 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Music for our program this week was courtesy of Sergei Cheremenisov, Peter Rudinko, Fatal Injection, Alavedra Montserrat, William McColl, and Joseph Levine. Sound effects by Mike Koenig, Mark D'Angelo, and Daniel Simeon. I'm Jim Sigler for Brainwaves. Thanks for listening. <laughs>